how successful would Star Wars have been if you took Darth Vader out of it? I'm curious if uh, Lord of the Rings would have sold as many copies if you took Sauron out of it. Harry Potter sold an incredible amount of books, and although I'm not necessarily here to promote or, or tell you to read any of these things, but there's no doubt that these, these books have sold millions and millions of copies, the movies have made millions and millions of, of dollars, and I'm just curious, would Harry Potter have sold so much if you took out Voldemort? Who would Batman be without the Joker? Every good story needs a bad guy. If you don't have a bad guy, you don't have conflict, then the story might be happy, but it won't be good. It won't be entertaining. The key to a good story is a great villain, a great bad guy. And part of what makes the book of 1 Samuel such a captivating story for Christians and even for non-Christians to study is that it is filled with conflict, it is filled with tension, it is filled with bad guys. Now, as we've been working through 1 Samuel, we've already encountered bad guys. We've encountered Eli and his sons and the plague that they've been on the people of Israel. But those are what we call domestic bad guys. Those are bad guys from within the camp. All right, when someone decides to join the military here in the United States, they have to swear an oath of protection, and they swear an oath to protect the United States from all enemies, both foreign and domestic. So far, the conflict of 1 Samuel has been domestic enemies. But we are now turning to kind of the premier bad guys of the book of 1 Samuel. This is the thorn in the flesh to the nation of Israel, their greatest geopolitical rivals, and that is the nation of the Philistines. The Philistines are some of the great bad guys. And by great, I don't mean good and moral. I just mean prolific. They are the bad guys of 1 Samuel. They are the bad guys to Israel, right? The, the famous story in, in, that we're going to read not too long from now is David and Goliath, right? Goliath was the Philistine rank. These, the Philistines was a nation near Israel that constantly fought with Israel, warred against Israel, and sought to destroy Israel. And we see the beginnings of this in 1 Samuel chapter 4. So if you would please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel to chapter 4. And we are going to work through this together. I would call you to follow along, for these are the very words of God. But we are going to try something a little different today. Uh, typically, our custom is to read the entire text and then go back. Um, but we're going to take this in bite-sized portions today and work through it step-by-step step together. And then after we have an understanding of the, the summary of the plot, then I think we can make some helpful applications as to what God would have for us in this text. If you would read with me just the first two verses. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So Israel has left Shiloh and they have met with the Philistines in some of the neighboring cities outside of the place of worship and they have lined up against one another and they have begun to battle. Now to Israel's surprise, they are losing. 
Why do I say this is as a surprise? Well, we need to keep in mind the history of 1 Samuel. And at the beginning of this book, the people of Israel have not been in the promised land, relatively speaking, for a very long time. That means they are still right on the heels of their great conquest. God has taken this people from Egypt and obliterated the most powerful nation on earth. And then he took this people through, and then as they finally entered into the promised land under Joshua's leadership, they go through and they're just winning and slaughtering and taking captive, and they're retrieving the land that God gave to his special people. They were very familiar with victory. God was on their side, and they were winning battle after battle because they were the chosen people. They're the people the true God is looking out for. So this is a people group that is not familiar with defeat. And yet, their great pagan Gentile rivals are winning. And so this causes fear among the leaders of Israel. So let's see how they respond, verses 3 and 4. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the leadership understands something very keenly. They understand that who is ultimately defeating us today? Not the Philistines. They are keenly aware that God is the one who gives us victory. God, he might use instrumental means, he uses people, he uses the means of the world, but they are not here saying, well, God must be absent, which is kind of the modern version of how we respond to when, when bad things happen. Well, you know, God doesn't want this to happen, but he would never override someone's free will, so he can't actually stop it, but he'll find a way to fix it. That's not their response to Philistine devastation. Well, God can't override their free will. He's not allowed to interact that way and force people to do things, so he's not in control of the Philistine army. They are, but he'll just make something good come later on. No, God is defeating us. Why? Why is God not giving us victory? And so the first thing they go to is the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember the story of the Ark of the Covenant? This was commissioned to be built under Moses. This was a sacred, sacred thing in Israel. Inside of this ark made of gold was the, the tablets, the Ten Commandments, some of the miraculous manna that fell from heaven, Aaron's rod that he led the people with and performed miracles in Egypt with. And on top of the ark were the cherubim, the, the angels, and in between was called the mercy seat. And that is where the presence of God was supposed to dwell. And that's where Moses and Aaron, that's where they would go to receive the revelation from God. The mercy seat on the ark, that was representative of God's presence, of his favor, and that's where he revealed himself. This was God's home. It was like the temple was where God dwelled, but the ark was the heart of the temple. This is truly where God's presence is. And so they think, we need God's presence. If, if God is not helping us, we need to bring him here. And by the way, this makes some sense, because if you read through Exodus and Numbers, the ark was sort of the symbol that they carried with them that went before them, and they had many great victories. Many great victories under Joshua were held, and God said, the ark needs to go before you. And it was almost seen as it was like the ark that was protecting them. It was the ark that was bringing them victory. And so they think, well, 
we haven't been doing this right. We're not supposed to go into battle without the ark. So go get the ark and victory is assured. So they go and retrieve the ark. Look at verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. And they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened to us before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. So they bring out the ark and it doesn't work. The batteries are broken in it or something. We don't know. The ark, uh, it just doesn't work. Israel loses. It's interesting, the moment they bring the ark out, they're filled with great courage. Like, this is definitely going to win. And it, it does scare the Philistines at first. Because the Philistines, if you remember, like every other religion in the known world, except for the Hebrew religion, except for Israel, were polytheists. They believed in multiple gods. But the interesting thing about their polytheism is, you know, today the way religious battles take place is one side says, your God doesn't exist, my God does. That's not how religious battles took place in this day and age. They generally agreed on the existence of the opposing nation's God. The issue was just whose God is more powerful. So it wasn't like our God exists and your God is made up. It was your God exists, my God exists, and we'll see who wins. We'll see who's stronger. And so the Philistines just assumed, they, they imposed their polytheism onto the monotheism of Israel, and they just assumed Israel has all these different gods, and they have heard of this ark. They have heard of the God who sits on this ark, and they have heard of all of the military victories that this God has brought, and so they are filled with fear. But then a greater fear overthrows them. They're, they're afraid of the God, and they're afraid now of Israel because of this God. But there's an even greater fear that overcomes them, and that is the fear of losing and becoming slaves. So the greater fear topples that, and now suddenly they're filled with courage. Be men. Which, by the way, very rarely throughout this sermon series are you ever going to hear me compliment the Philistines. But to some degree, can we say this is actually kind of cool? <laughs> Right? This is actually kind of emblematic. I mean, here they are in the midst of, we're warring now with gods and men. And what do they say? Be men. Be courageous. Every now and then, the unbelieving world does something that we Christians can learn from. And this is one of them. This is great courage. Be men. Grow up. <laughs> and so they are filled with courage. And they advance and they win. 
And what's important to this narrative is you remember, what have we been looking at time and time again throughout the last few chapters? God's prophecy to kill Eli and Hophni. And remember, it's specifically on the same day. God fulfills that promise. Remember, they weren't even in battle. So you see how God is intricately working? They weren't even there. They're supposed to be keepers of the ark. But what happened? The ark was brought to battle. So I'm sure it was reluctantly. I don't want to speculate too much. But I can't imagine Eli and, or Hophni and Phinehas were super excited to follow the ark into battle. A losing battle. But nevertheless, it's their duty. It's their job. So they are brought into a place where they're not even supposed to be. And they are one of the many who are slaughtered. And God's word is vindicated. And the ark is captured. And I, I just want us to say, it's hard for us in our context to imagine the blasphemy of this. It's hard for us to imagine how devastating the holy ark of God falling into pagan Gentile hands is. This is a curse, a judgment that we don't even have many analogies to compare it with. The ark didn't work. The ark has been captured Eli and Hophni and Phineas, or forgive me, Hophni and Phineas have now died on the same day as God promised. And we learn something, that the ark is not what we call rabbit's foot theology. We learn that uh, God did never intended the ark to be this magical pill. You just bring it in your guaranteed victory. Apparently God doesn't think that way because the true ark was brought in and it didn't work. So how does Israel respond to this loss? Verse 12 a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on a seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see and the man said to Eli, I am he who was come from, bat from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God... Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. He judged Israel for 40 years. So a messenger comes into the camp and fat, old, blind Eli is sitting high on a gate waiting for news of what has happened. And the text tells us at the beginning he's particularly worried about something. And isn't it interesting, it's not his children. The text goes out of his way to say he set up camp there, he's anxious, he's waiting to hear the news of the ark. I think Eli knows, based on what we saw with his encounter with Samuel in the prophecy, he knows his time with him and his sons are done. He's no longer worried about that. That's set in stone. What he is worried about is what he doesn't know the future state of, and that's the ark. And we see this again, and what is it that makes him f freak out so much that he falls and dies? It's the ark being captured, not his children being dead. The text is very clear on that. He learns two things, and then the text tells us, but when he heard of the ark, that's when he fell over. 
He's not even so much mourning his rebellious sons. Their fate has been sealed. He knows his fate has been sealed. He is worried about the ark. In the worst news he could possibly hear, we lost and the holy ark of the covenant is in Philistine hands. Some people suggest he had a heart attack. I think that's reasonable speculation. But we don't actually know. Something about that news was so jarring that he falls from his place and he lands on his head. And because he's fat and because he's old, his neck breaks and he dies. And guess what we have? Another fulfillment from God. Because he didn't just prophesy to kill his sons. He prophesied to end him as well. By the way, there's one more fulfillment from God that needs to take place. And that's what we find out at the end of our text. Look at verse 19. Now, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news of the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So Phineas' wife, Eli's daughter-in-law, was pregnant, giving birth right around the time of the battle. And as soon as she heard about the news of her husband, her brother-in-law, and Eli, and the ark, she gives birth, names her son, and then she dies from parents some kind of birth complications. And she does what is a common Jewish custom, which was to name your child based on the circumstances surrounding the birth. And so she names him Ichabod, which literally means the glory has left or the glory has departed. She's noticed what happened on the day of my son's birth. The glory of God left us. God has forsaken us. And so she names him Ichabod. The glory is gone. And she's half right. She's right. She's correct, but she has the cart before the horse. In her mind, she's thinking, right, so the ark of God represents the presence of God and the glory of God, and the ark left and has been captured, therefore the glory of God has left and been captured. But it's actually the other way around. You see, the glory of God is not gone because the ark has been captured. The ark was captured because the glory of God was gone. This is God's judgment on these people. God departed them before the battle began. God brought about the fulfillment of his word. He is bringing judgment just as he said he would. Now, we read this text, and it's obviously, for lack of a better word, a very gloomy text, a very dark text. 34,000 men dead. Eli is called fat and old, dies a bad, embarrassing death. Hophni, Phinehas, dead. The ark, gone. This poor woman, dead. It's just a lot of death. But when we keep it in context, we we are actually able to, I dare say, enjoy this text a little more than other people would. Because God has been telling us for multiple chapters now this was coming. And we have already learned that this was needed. You see, judgment is also a grace. Judgment is a two-sided coin. 
It's judgment. It's wrath, but it's also gracious. It's judgment is not gracious to those being judged, but it's gracious to somebody. If somebody harmed your family in a terrible way and they went to court and they were found guilty and they were sentenced, would you consider that a gracious and good thing? Would you rather that person be free? When justice is brought out upon someone, unless you're the person receiving it, it's a grace. It's a grace to everyone involved. Justice and judgment is purification and righteousness and vindication. It's a gracious thing. We see that the two-sided sword, if you will, of God's working here, that he is bringing judgment and retribution on a disobedient fallen people. But we know from the outside, the revelation we've been given, that he is purifying his people. And he's raising up for them something good. They have been steeped in wickedness and sin and they have horrible leadership. And all we've learned here is that God is turning the page. We have a divine perspective to see the grace of judgment. We have a divine perspective to see the purification of judgment. Now that doesn't mean that it's easy even for the, for the righteous people among them. There were righteous people in Israel. Right? We, we've, we've seen the classic example is Samuel's parents. Not everyone in Israel was unrighteous. And I promise you that this was not a fun day for them. Right? They weren't walking around going, this means nothing to us because it's really only the wicked among us being judged. No, 30,000 people, I guarantee they had loved ones dead on a battlefield today. Their brothers, their sisters, their uncles, they have dead people that they love on that battlefield. And they don't have the kind of divine perspective we have. They're very much in the dark. They, they don't really know what's going on the way we have the benefit of. So don't, don't hear me saying that uh, even when God pours out righteous judgment, that uh, that means it should be easy for us to endure as the righteous. This was a difficult day for everybody. This was the worst day, you could argue, in Israel's history since the Exodus. But we know God is up to something gracious here. God is up to something good here. And I think that as we see God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises and begin purification of Israel, as we see the way they lost the battle, I think we learn really three very, very important things for us today. Kind of applications, if you will. We learn about the grace of judgment, God's faithfulness to his word. That's sort of the thesis, the main theme of the text. But there's some really important applications today. If you're sitting there wondering, what do I do with this text? How does this text teach me? How does it edify me? How does it help me? All this blood and drama. Well, I think there's three really important things for us to learn. And the first one is we learn this. God desires our religion, not our superstition. God desires our religion, not our superstition. The Israelite people, and the way they dealt with the ark, essentially became a superstitious people. Their understanding was the ark was this is this some sacred miraculous thing, and if you just bring it, good things will happen. It's just like an equation. It's like the laws of physics. It can't be broken. The ark goes, victory comes. It's just the way the universe works. That's superstition. Right? Like what are some other superstitions we have? There's, you know, knock on wood. Right? You say something and you don't want it to be prophetic. So what do you do? You knock on wood. And that has some 
magical power to cancel out the historic trajectory that you just set it on, right? It's this superstition. It's rabbit's foot. It's you've got this thing and it will protect you. You do this and it will keep you safe. This is superstition, not religion. And that's what the Israelites devolved into. Just bring the ark and everything will go well. No, that's not the case at all. God never made that promise over the ark. That's just what your religion devolved into. And this is important because I use extreme examples like knock on wood, and I don't know how many people take that seriously. You know, people will do that, but I don't think they're really meaning that. But that doesn't mean superstition is not rampant in our culture. It is. There's a movie that I really like. I, I started off with a movie metaphor, so we'll just keep it going. There's a war movie, and the, the movie focuses around this, these, these soldiers who operate a tank together. In the beginning of the movie, they're a very close group, very, you know, they've seen a lot. They're very close, and one of their guys dies, so he has to be replaced. And so the beginning of the movie is this new kid, this young typist who's just recently drafted, way in over his head, terrified of the war. He's brought in, and he's charged to overtake this man's job. And so obviously there's some conflict because they love this man. They don't even know this kid, so they don't like him. And this kid shows up, and the first question that one of the actors asks him in the movie is, are you saved? And you know what the kid's response is? I've been baptized. And you know what he says? I didn't ask you if you were baptized. I asked you if you were saved. Because baptism is not a superstitious pill that just guarantees your way into heaven. Hell is going to be filled with baptized people. I didn't ask you if you were baptized. I hear this all the time in my own life. I don't even need a movie. I ask people, oh, are, are you a Christian? Well, I was, raised in, uh, I was raised in the Lutheran church. I didn't ask you how you were raised. I asked you, are you a Christian? Have you repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Well, I was, yeah, I was confirmed in, in the Catholic church. I didn't ask you if you've ever been confirmed. I asked you if you've placed your faith and trust and repentance, you, you get the point. Or are you a believer? Well, my, my parents are, my dad's a pastor. I didn't ask if your dad was a pastor. <laughs> now, these things are good. Baptism is a glorious thing. The Lord's Supper is a glorious thing. Catechism, education, confirmation, these are glorious things. So don't hear me degrading these things. The ark of God was a glorious thing. So to, to simply say the ark of God is not a magical pill that guarantees your salvation is not to degrade the ark. We can still affirm the ark of God was sacred and holy and important and beautiful and wonderful without making it be this magical pill that guarantees all of these good things in my life. And so we would say the same thing about our sacraments. Baptism is a glorious, sacred, efficacious thing. And believers need to do it. It's wonderful. It's amazing. But... Paul was able and willing to say in 1 Corinthians to that divided people, I am so glad I didn't baptize any of you, for God did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Because baptism is not your ticket into heaven. The Lord's Supper is a glorious thing, but it's not your ticket into heaven. That's superstition. In other words, what we're saying is these incredible sacraments, these incredible symbols, if you will, whatever, whatever language you're comfortable describing things like the ark of God and the sacraments, these are glorious and wonderful things. But apart from our faith and repentance, they won't do us much good. As a matter of fact, I can make the argument, and if you're one of our Presbyterian factions in here, you're definitely going to amen to this, that 
these sacraments will actually do you ill good apart from repentance of faith. They will bring more judgment upon you. God desires our religion, not our superstition. So what I mean by that is we never want to have these magical symbols. We never want to place our faith and trust in something we've done. We need Jesus. We need a living, repentant, faithful relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then from there, we suddenly have a glory to all of these things that God has given us. But the ark of God was not benefiting Israel apart from their obedience and their love of God. And wearing a cross on your necklace is not going to benefit you apart from faith, obedience, and love for God. So we learn about our need for religion, not superstitions. But number two, we also have, we learn about this. We as a Christian people, as a church, have a constant need for humility. Humility, right, sometimes we think of humility as like how you have to enter into Christ. You have to humble yourself, right? That's what repentance is. It's ultimately a sign of humiliation. You humble yourself. I am, I am a sinner. I am in need of saving. And then we turn to Christ. You cannot come to Christ without first humbling yourself. That's why the Bible says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. We need to be humble. But humility is not just some act of faith that we do, get saved and then we lose it. Humility is, needs to be the constant disposition of the church, the constant disposition of, of the Christians. And here's why I say that, because you know what I think is happening in 1 Samuel 4? I think these are, this is a people that have grown way too comfortable. They've lost obedience. They've lost love for God because they're just resting on their status. We're the chosen people. Go back and read the Old Testament. Read what God said about us when he covenanted with Moses. He said, of all the nations on the earth, I choose you. You are the apple of my eye. And then he vindicated his special love for us, a love he doesn't have for the Gentile nations, because he destroyed Egypt. And he destroyed the inhabitants of Canaan. He protected us. These are people who think they're great because we're the chosen people. We're the special people of God. And so they lost this need to approach God constantly with love and humility and obedience, just resting on, hey, we're good. And this is why God was not afraid to make an example of them. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. As a matter of fact, you don't have to turn there. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 12, God says this, Go now to my place that was in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Shiloh, the desolation of Shiloh has become this standard that God turns his people back to to essentially say, I don't need you. You want to walk in evil? You want to walk in disobedience? I don't need you. You don't believe me? Look at what I did at Shiloh. The glory departed from them. Ichabod. And so we too, as Christians, as Redeemer Christian Fellowship, as a church, we need to be reminded of this important lesson. That judgment begins in the household of God. That we cannot become lazy and complacent and think we're special. I, let me just be honest with you. In my own life, this is actually, this is a temptation, this is a sin I wrestle with. You know, well, of course, of, of course, we're, we're, we're this special church. I mean, we're not doing things like all those other churches. 
right? It's easy to become arrogant and haughty, like, oh, well, we do this, and those churches don't have that, and they don't even have this, and they don't even do that. It's like, we're the special church in this community. God would never do away with us. We're reformed, right? God, he loves reformed theology. We're reformed, so, you know, of course, God's gonna, no, God's message to Israel is the same to us. I don't need you. I love you. I want you. But if you walk in disobedience, if you are lazy and complacent, what, what did he say? Remember when we did a, our Revelation sermon series? We, we didn't go through the whole book of Revelation. We just went through the seven churches. Remember how he warned Ephesus? This is what he told Ephesus. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And we learned that what was the symbolism of that? The lampstand was a symbol of their church. Their church was the lampstand in its community. And God said, I will come in there and put out that fire. I was just reading this morning of a church in Nashville. It was supposed to be this profound evangelical church that has a long history or something. And they just recently capitulated to the spirit of our age and surrendered on incredibly important biblical doctrines. This is a church that now has an invisible spiritual sign painted on their front billboard that says Ichabod. God has left this place. And we could travel around the United States and Canada and we could go to some of these great historic buildings which are now nothing more than real estate signs. And we could find in, in most of these cases, this thing began as a healthy, vibrant, Christ-adoring church. And now someone's selling the building to make it a museum. You can start strong. That doesn't mean you're going to finish strong. And it needs to be our goal. We have children in this church. We have babies. It needs to be our goal to work hard that God would never write Ichabod across our doors. We are not so significant right now that that is an unheard of thing. No, we must be in a constant state of humility, constantly dependent on the grace of God, humbling ourselves before the Lord, seeking Him by faith and obedience. He wants to use us, but He doesn't need us. We cannot grow lazy and complacent and arrogant like Israel. We are reminded of our great need for constant humility. We are what we are by the grace of God and by the grace of God alone. And we need to constantly be begging him for grace, for help, and for mercy. So we have learned that God does not desire our religion. Or forgive me, he does desire our religion, not our superstition. We've learned of our constant need of humility. And probably the most obvious one, the, the really, really uh, one that's on the surface of the text is this. We need to remember that God is sovereign over our calamities. God is sovereign over our calamity. In other words, I want, let's, let's go back to this daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas. How does the text end? What's her perspective of what's happening right now? This is the worst thing in the world. Israel's been defeated. The glory and the ark have gone. Judgment is being poured out. This, this is the last day of her life and the worst day of her life. And, 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 and can we blame her? What, what hope does she have that this is secretly a good thing? Her husband's dead. 
Her husband has been a wicked, evil leader, leading the people with her wicked stepfather into sin and rebellion and idolatry. This is a disobedient people. This was a desecrated religion, and now God is done with them, and he's pouring out judgment, and it's bloody, and it's terrible. And what hope does she have? What hope does any Israelite have? You see, that's easy for us to answer because we're reading the whole story. And we're reading it from a divine perspective. We are, we are reminded of this incredibly comforting thing that what is happening right now is the hand of God. In other words, the Philistines are not winning because God has just lost control. That is what should truly terrify us. That would be scary if the narrative was that God does not want the Philistines to win, but he did everything in his power he could to stop them and they were still victorious. That's what should keep us up at night. But that's not what's happening. Why did the Philistines win? Because God gave them the green light. And how do we know that? Because God told them this was going to happen. <laughs> this is not surprise God. This was not taken by surprise. This is the judgment of God. And by the way, in case you're, you, you want to accuse me, well, you're, you're taking a very specific example and, and, and trying to apply it to us. Just because God did this here, does that mean he's sovereign in all these circumstances? Well, this is what Amos chapter 3 verse 6 says. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? That's, that is a rhetorical question, and it's a broad question. We're not just talking about Shiloh right now. Any city, disaster falls upon it. Who's ultimately responsible? The Lord. And we learn from this text that that does not make some God, God this tyrannical bully who just loves to pour out punishment. Why has disaster come upon Israel? Because they deserved it. It's justice. It's grace. It's righteousness. It's not this cat and mouse game where God just likes to torture people and we have no, no, God is doing something good. He has a purpose for it and he has a plan for it. And we know that here. We see the good, what's the good news here? The evil leadership has now been taken care of and who's left over? Samuel. There is a young, righteous boy back in the temple right now. And when all the dust on the battlefield settles, we have a righteous man about to take the reins and bring restoration. Eventually, he's going to disciple King David. God is doing something amazing here, but we have the privilege to see it. Normally, in our everyday lives, we don't have a Bible story that tells us, why is America going the way it is? I don't have a Bible story for you there. But I have a Bible story to tell you this. God has not lost control. This is not happening outside of his goodwill, outside of his good pleasure. He has not lost love for his faithful people. Now, like we said, does that make this easy? No. The fact that God was sovereign over this calamity did not make it any that much easier for the people grieving at home who just lost a loved one. So I'm not calling you just some kind of bizarre piety where you just walk around and act like life doesn't hurt. Well, I'm a believer and God is in control of all things, so I don't care what comes my way. 
That's not the new perspective of Paul in the New Testament. Paul regularly tells people, pray to God that he would relent. We don't want this to happen. Life is still hard. Judgment still stings. But there is a great hope that helps us endure it. There is a great hope that helps us get through it. And it's this hope we remember that God is in control of this. And he's faithful and good to his people. There, there, there is something good. I might not be able to tell you what it is. Even if God revealed it to me, it would probably be way too grand and I wouldn't even understand it. But we can trust him with our calamity. We can trust him with judgment. So in conclusion, God is good to us. He is faithful to us. And although sometimes we do need discipline, he is always good to his faithful to his righteous, to his people. And so may we respond to his goodness and to his discipline by obeying him and by coming to him through faith in his son, by remaining humble in need of his grace and trusting in his plans for his people.